Let's pray. Our Father, now we turn our attention to your word, a passage that we may be familiar with, Father, but we also recognize our need for your help. So Lord, we ask that you would illumine our hearts, give us the help we need, so that this message would not just be the words of a mere man, but that we would recognize and hear your voice speak through your word today. In the name of Jesus, we, we pray, amen. Ah, the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is a familiar story for us. We all know what this is about, right? Okay, Jesus wants us to love our neighbor, and so he provides us with a challenging example of how we are to do that. The story is supposed to make us feel guilty for all the times we have noticed a motorist parked on the side of the road with their hood up, and we didn't even stop. We just drove right on by them. Or all the times we've been in Omaha and have seen someone dressed in shabby clothes at a busy intersection with a sign saying that they are homeless and asking for a handout, and we ignored them and just went on with our day. Isn't that what the story is supposed to be about, making us feel guilty for doing those things? Or maybe you have a story of of how you did stop and you helped someone on the side of the road, and they were very grateful for your help. Maybe they even referred to you as a good Samaritan. Maybe you've done that more than once. And so the story is meant to give you assurance You must have eternal life because, well, you've been a good Samaritan, right? You've done that. So this doesn't make you feel guilty. It makes you feel pretty good. Was that what this passage is teaching us? Is that it? Is that what this is all about? Well, if you haven't noticed, I think there's probably more to it than that. I think the Lord has a deeper purpose uh, with this story than just to make us either feel guilty or good about ourselves. What then do I think this passage is teaching us? Well, my main theme will tell you, but as always, look at the passage yourselves and ask the Lord to reveal to you what he wants you to learn from it. What is he saying to us here? So my main theme is this, the Lord is gracious to point out our inability to earn eternal life for ourselves so that we might look to him for mercy. The Lord is gracious to point out our inability to earn eternal life for ourselves so that we might look to him for mercy. So this is a different passage because Jesus is challenged with a question and then he eventually responds to that question with a, with a parable. So I came up with a little different outline to help us work through uh, this familiar yet different passage this morning. If you are a reader, you might think that my outline resembles chapter titles rather than uh, a sermon, but I think you'll see the method to my madness as we go on here. So the first uh, heading we have is called the setup. The setup, and this is verses 25 through 28 here, so look at those verses. 
in Luke 10. The setup. This whole passage is basically a, a conversation between Jesus and a man whom Luke refers to as a lawyer there in verse 25. We, 21st century Americans, also have lawyers in our culture. They are people educated in the laws of our land and can uh, either defend or prosecute us in a court of law. Uh, we also think of them as being fairly wealthy and uh, charging incredibly high rates uh, for their services. But of course, there are exceptions to that. Uh, but the lawyer here in our passage was not an expert in the laws of the land necessarily, like our contemporary lawyers, but he was supposed to be an expert in the law of God. That is, his expertise was the Bible of his day. He was a Bible scholar. And let's not forget what Jesus had just said in the passage immediately before this one about the wise and understanding. Look at that in verse 21 of chapter 10, a few verses ahead here. In that same hour he rejoiced, this is Jesus, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for your such was your gracious will. So we have that in our minds as we meet this Bible scholar, this wise and understanding man. So this Bible scholar comes before Jesus with, with, with a question. It was a common question, and it's a very significant question. He asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus and his disciples had been preaching about the kingdom of God, and they had been saying that the kingdom of God is at hand, it has come near, and this Bible scholar is asking what does he have to do in order to make sure he will inherit the kingdom? Again, it seems like a weighty question on a very serious matter. But the question isn't genuine. Luke informs us that the Bible scholar stood up to put Jesus to the test. The Greek word used here is the same one for to tempt. The lawyer is trying to set Jesus up to fail in some way. He is trying to trick him into saying something that Jesus' enemies could then use against him. The expert in the law is not genuinely concerned about his salvation. This is all a setup. The past two weeks, I read the autobiography of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, this fall marks his 29th year on the Supreme Court. I know that's, that's hard to believe. You know, many of you remember the debacle of his confirmation hearings way back in 19. 91. Uh, in the book, he describes how many senators, and one in particular, sought to test him with their questions. They tried to trip him up into saying something that they could use against him. They pulled statements that he had made years before. They pulled him out of context to make it sound like he believed something that he did not believe, and, or he said something he really didn't say. So it was eye-opening for me to hear about that, that that was similar to what this Bible scholar is trying to do with Jesus here. It's all a setup. So know that as we're hearing Jesus' response. Jesus did not take the bait. 
This man was an expert in the law, so Jesus turned the question around on him and asked him what he thought. Well, you're an expert in the law. Well, what, what, what do you think? Look at verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? We need to understand what Jesus was, was doing here. Jesus knew this question wasn't genuine, so he responded by asking for the lawyer's own interpretation of the law. How did he think the Bible answered his question? And the lawyer responded by giving the classic summary of the law, quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 there in verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer believed if he, if, if he followed the law, he could inherit eternal life. That's what the law said. So one very, very important thing to keep in mind as we seek to understand this very familiar passage is, to, is the focus that's being put here on doing. Doing. The lawyer asks, what shall I do? Jesus responds in verse 20, 28, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. So what is it again that the man is supposed to do in order to inherit eternal life? Well, he must love. He must love, love God with everything he, that, that, that he is, his, his, his mind, his soul, his strength, and love his neighbor as himself. How do you love? How do you do that? To love is to have a certain disposition towards someone else. It's a matter of the heart. If someone is to love someone else, he or she must have a desire within them to work for the good of the other person. If one is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, it would mean that pleasing God and living for God's glory takes precedence over everything else in your life. So these commands are a matter of the heart. In order to follow the commands, you must have the right heart regarding God and others. You must truly desire their good and their honor. You will seek to do what is best for them. That is what it means to love. Jesus is saying here, in order to inherit eternal life, you have to be the right kind of person. You have to have the right kind of heart. The kind of heart which drives you to live and work for God's glory and for the good of your neighbor. It's not just about doing, you know, just doing this and doing that. It's about being. It's about who you are. So that's the challenge that Jesus presents to the lawyer here. Now here comes our default response to such a challenge. Look at verse 29. But he, that is the expert in the law, he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Luke again helps us to see the motivation behind the question that this Bible scholar was asking. He asked this question, Luke says, desiring to justify himself. Jesus had just told him that in order to inherit eternal life, he must do the work of loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he must love his neighbor as himself. The lawyer knew that in order to love God, the law requires you to love your neighbor. 
Those things can't be divided. So he then asked a clarifying question to Jesus about which people would fit the biblical definition of neighbor. Now, let's re- remember again, this is a Bible scholar here asking this question. This is an expert in God's written law. He had his own definition of what the law meant by neighbor. And the question shows that he believed that the law divides people into different categories. Those who are your neighbors, who you are then expected to love, and those people who are not your neighbors, and therefore you don't need to be concerned about them. So it is a question that is meant to limit that group of people who fall into the category of neighbor. If we can limit that category to a smaller and smaller group of people, well, we can then more easily do what is required to inherit eternal life. This is how we work to justify ourselves. It's it's something that we are all guilty of doing. On your your computers and your smartphones, you have all kinds of default settings. Um, For example, you'll have a default setting for which printer your computer uh, will send your document to in order to be printed off. Uh, This morning when I printed off uh, my, my sermon notes, I just hit the, the, the big button on the screen, and automatically sent my document to the printer in the church office because that's its default setting. We all have a default setting in our hearts. Our default setting is for justifying ourselves. That's what we all just fall to. Deep down, we believe it is up to us to defend ourselves. It is up to us to make ourselves look good. And so whenever a challenge comes up, Our default is to self-justification. When we are confronted with the truth that we are sinners, we automatically seek to justify ourselves and find reasons for why our sins really can't be counted against us. We we find justifiable reasons for why we responded in anger or why we told that lie or why we weren't kind to that certain person. It usually ends, ends up in our pointing our finger at someone or something else. It was because of the way we were raised. It was because we were treated unfairly. It was because we weren't given enough help when we needed it. Our hearts are really good at coming up with justifications. We do it all the time. And this expert in the law is doing an old trick that we have all done before with God's law. He is trying to to lower God's standards down to a place where they could be reached by his own human effort. The question is really an attempt to limit who his neighbor is. He's trying to lessen the number of people that would be included within that circle of neighbors, and thus he could then leave out a large number of people that he would be justified in disregarding in limiting the extent of the law's demand, he could then limit his own responsibility to it. My friends, you and I have the same tendency. When we hear God's law, our default is to try to find an easier way for us to claim that that we have been doing enough to follow it rather than humbling ourselves and confessing that we have not followed it. And thus we are under God's condemnation. 
Our hearts immediately look for loopholes in the law in order to claim that we, we, we've done enough rather than humbly admit we, we haven't and then ask for God's mercy. So how did Jesus respond to the default response of the uh, lawyer here? Well, that's the parable, verses 30 through 37. Let's read this again. Jesus replied, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So Jesus answers the Bible scholar's question by telling this story, telling this parable. And the story packs a punch in that its hero is a complete surprise to anyone who would have been present hearing this for the first time, especially for those Jews who considered themselves leaders in following God. Now the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was well known as a dangerous road. Jerusalem sat atop Mount Zion, Uh, and the city of Jericho was down in the Jordan River Valley, 3,600 feet below. So this road descended down the mountains, winding back and forth through a very rough country, and there were countless caves and places for bandits to hide and pounce on unsuspecting travelers. For those hearing this story, when Jesus first mentioned a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, the people would have all gasped, oh, they would have known this man is in danger. The focus, though, isn't on the man who was beaten and robbed and left for dead. The focus is on those who came upon him while he laid by the side of the road. That is, laid by the side of the road half dead. He wasn't dead yet, but he was in great need of help in order to keep him from dying. This man was nearing death and would have died without someone helping him. And Jesus provides hope for the man when he says, now by chance a priest was going down the road. Jericho was one of the nearest larger cities to Jerusalem, and it was said that that many priests lived there. So as this priest had finished serving in the temple in Jerusalem, he was making his way home, and he came upon the injured man. But rather than helping the man, we are told he crossed over to the other side of the road. That is, he had to create some distance between the man and him so as to to, to safely uh, ignore him and leave the man in his misery. We're then told there's another glimmer of hope. It's a Levite. A Levite, that is one who also served in the temple. He's not the same as a priest, but he also served in the temple. Well, he also avoided the awkwardness of walking too closely to the man who was desperately in need of help, and he got as far away from him as possible walked past him on the other side of the road and just carried on with his day. Now, of course, you and I have no reason to look down on these two guys. Each of us have made similar decisions in our lives. 
this was a dangerous road after all. Maybe the man on the side of the road, maybe this was all a trap. You know, it was all an act to have them stop and let their guard down so robbers could attack them. Uh, they didn't know who this man was. Maybe he had gotten himself into trouble. Maybe he deserved the suffering he's receiving. We've, we've all thought that probably time or two. What if they tried to help, but then the man died under their care? Well, the man's family could possibly blame them for his death and might go after them or their own family members to avenge his death. Or maybe, maybe they were in just in too big of a hurry. They had other priorities, other people who were counting on them, and so they could just not spare the, their time to stop and help. As we see from the actions of the Samaritan, who did help the man, this ended up being a very costly sacrifice to help the man. And for the priest and Levite, the price may have been just too high for them to pay. So that's, that's so often the case for us too. When we are faced with the opportunity to help someone in need, well, we kind of figure it in our minds, uh, nope, sorry, price is just too high. So now the crowd gasps even more when Jesus mentioned who did stop to help the man in verse 33. He tells that a, a Samaritan stopped, and, and the Samaritan had compassion on the injured man. Now the last we heard about Samaritans in the Gospel of Luke, well, they were rejecting Jesus. They were rejecting Jesus, and his disciples wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy them. Since we are so familiar with the story, when Jesus says Samaritan, we are not shocked, we are not surprised, but believe me, this would have been shocking for Jesus' disciples and for the lawyer here, as well as for any Israelite who heard him tell the story. For us, it would be like Jesus saying it was an ISIS leader, an ISIS terrorist leader who stopped to help, or it was an Antifa rioter who stopped and helped and had compassion on this man. This was a shock. This was a surprise. And it was meant to be. Jesus was making a point here. So Jesus then turned, turned, turned the lawyer's question around on him. Remember that the lawyer had asked, who is my neighbor? That is, who are the people that I am expected to love and care for? And Jesus tells the story, and then Jesus asks, which of these three, that is the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor to the man? The lawyer was thinking of the neighbor as someone whom you were responsible for. Jesus turns it around and says, someone who proves to be a neighbor is someone who is compassionate towards others in need. And of course, the point is, a neighbor shows compassion towards anyone in need. Anyone, regardless of who they are. Anyone who is in need of mercy. So Jesus asked the question of who proved to be a neighbor. And the lawyer couldn't bring himself to use the detestable designation of the Samaritan. He couldn't say the word. And so he just says, uh, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now remember what his initial question was back in verse 25. What shall I do what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, go and do like the Samaritan in the story. Go and do like the one who showed mercy, the one who had compassion, 
become the kind of person who loves God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and who loves your neighbor as yourself. And show compassion, show mercy, be like the Samaritan here. And then he shows that it, it might mean you have to be merciful and compassionate towards someone that you consider to be your enemy. As the Samaritan would have considered any Jew on the side of the road to Jericho. One whom he knew would have despised him. Jesus says, be that kind of person. For those are the kind of people who will inherit eternal life. And of course this poses an even bigger problem for the lawyer and for us. How can anyone live up to such a high standard? How can anyone be expected to love like that? Jesus is showing the man that is, uh, he's showing this man that it is impossible for him or anyone else to justify themselves. And that is his point. That's the whole point of the parable. We cannot look to ourselves to be like that. We need to look outside of ourselves. We need to become different people. We need new hearts. We can't change our hearts on our own, and so we will have to depend not on ourselves but upon God who transforms us. And that's the answer. That's the answer. This is our, our last section here. Let's remind ourselves again of the Bible scholar's original question. Back in verse 25, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus pointed the question back at him, and the lawyer responded by quoting the summary of the law. There in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus affirmed his answer, do this and live. That is, as long as you love God in all these ultimate ways and love your neighbor as, as, as much in the same way as you love yourself, that is, you care for your neighbor, you provide for your neighbor, you always seek the good of your neighbor, you will be on your way to eternal life. And at that point, the lawyer had the perfect opportunity to show that he really understood what Jesus was saying. But instead, the lawyer revealed that he was not yet one of those little children whom God the Father had revealed the way of the kingdom to. Again, back in verse 27, we, we uh, looked at that earlier. So in verse 28, he showed he was one of the wise and understanding. He didn't yet have eyes to see the way of the kingdom, for he was trying to justify himself before God and others rather than humbling himself before Christ and repenting of his complete inability to love God and others like God's law required. He could have went to his face on the ground and asked the Lord for mercy. For back in Luke 5.32, we heard there that Jesus had not come for those who don't believe that they are in need of God's help, but only for those who know they are sinners. Jesus said there, I've come not to call the righteous, that is, those who justify themselves, but I've come to call sinners to repentance, those who know they are sinners, those who know they have failed to keep God's law. But Jesus was patient with, with, with this Bible scholar, as he also has been with us. And he answered the man's question with a story to clearly show him and us 
In order to receive eternal life, we need to become different people. We need transformed hearts and lives. We need to become people who love God and love others. And that transformation can only come if we reject all attempts at self-justification and depend upon God's mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, as Jesus also said previously in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. But he who is forgiven little, that is who doesn't believe he has a need for much forgiveness. He loves little. So friends, this story is supposed to reveal to us just how much we have fallen short of God's law and God's way. We don't love him like we ought to. And it shows for how often we fail to love one another. We, we all have neighbors that we'd rather not have to deal with. Neighbors we, we'd rather not have to show mercy to and care for. We need to be transformed. We need help. We are all weak. We are all broken sinners who are naked and exposed before God. Sin has ravaged us, and we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But God did not leave us in that condition. God did not leave us by the side of the road. He did not pass by us, but sent us his son, the Lord Jesus. And he came to us. He came to us in our sin, in our fallen condition, and through his sinless life and sacrificial death on the cross for us, he did all that was necessary to save us. He did all that was necessary to justify us before God. Have you recognized your lost condition before God? Do you know that there is nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. That it is a gift that God only gives to those who humble themselves and seek his mercy. Do you know how great your sins are and how much you can be forgiven through Christ? Do you know yourself to be a sinner, the very kind of person that Jesus has come to save? And have you repented and received his love? If you have, you have eternal life in him. If you haven't, today, you can come before him. You can admit your sins, admit the way you're trying to justify yourself. Say, I, I have not done this. I have not loved you as I ought. I have not loved others. I am a sinner. But I recognize my need to be saved my need for Christ to justify me, to stand in my place, to be punished for my sins on the cross, and then to be covered with his righteousness before God. All those who have humbled themselves in that way before Christ and have received the gift of faith and eternal life are welcome this morning to partake of the table. So I invite the, the men who will be coming forward to help us serve and I'll be reading here from 1 Corinthians 11, the instructions given to the church for the Lord's table. So when you come together, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is what we do when we partake of the Lord's table. We, we are proclaiming the death of Christ, that the, the, the death of Christ has been uh, enough for sinners to be justified before God. He died in our place. He took our sins on himself. His death now justifies those who put their faith in him. But Paul also goes on and gives some more instructions. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So every time we uh, gather around the Lord's table, we are called to examine ourselves. Where are we with, with the Lord Jesus? Are we trusting in him for our justification? Are we trusting in him for our salvation? Or are we, again, like that Bible scholar in our, our passage, trying to justify ourselves by you know, kind of limiting the things that we think God requires of us and thinking we can do enough to make ourselves right with God? But if that's, that's where we are, the table just isn't for us because we haven't repented, we haven't turned to Christ. But if you have turned to Christ, if your hope is in Christ alone for your salvation, then the table is for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing now upon us as we partake of the Lord's table. We recognize the great significance of what the table rep represents. You have called us to this table you have called us to, to be with you. And the only way that that could be possible for sinners to be with you, God, is through the sacrifice of your son Jesus on our behalf. And so this table represents for us, recalls for us, that great sacrifice. Help us, Father, to honor the Lord Jesus, to give thanks to you and to him for our salvation, to know that we all do this together. We are all sinners before the cross of Christ. We're all equal before the cross of Christ. And if we are in your presence together, the only way that we've all come before you is we have admitted our sin and we've received grace and mercy from you through Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and I, the ungodly. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. On the night when our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this bread is my body. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Then after they had eaten, our Lord then took the cup. He said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it in remembrance of me. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.